they were interesting. Very interesting. If the verdict had gone the other way, there would have been good grounds for appeal, I rather think, but I won't go into that now. I was thinking, as I say, not of the points of law, but of the, well, of the people in the case. Everybody looked rather astonished. They had considered the people in the case only as regarding their credibility or otherwise as witnesses. No one had even hazarded a speculation as to whether the prisoner had been guilty or innocent, as the court had pronounced him to be. Human beings, you know, said Mr. Treves thoughtfully. Human beings. All kinds and sorts and sizes and shapes of them. Some with brains and a good many more without. They'd come from all over the place. Lancashire, Scotland, that restaurant proprietor from Italy, and that schoolteacher woman from somewhere out Middle West, all caught up and enmeshed in the thing, and finally all brought together in a court of law in London on a grey November day, each one contributing his little part, the whole thing culminating in a trial for murder. He paused and gently beat a delicate tattoo on his knee. I like a good detective story, he said, but you know, they begin in the wrong place. They begin with the murder. But the murder is the end. The story begins long before that, years before sometimes, with all the causes and events that bring certain people to a certain place at a certain time on a certain day. Take that little maidservant's evidence. If the kitchen-maid hadn't pinched her young man— she wouldn't have thrown up her situation in a huff and gone to the Lemons and been the principal witness for the defence. Or that Giuseppe Antonelli, coming over to exchange with his brother for a month. The brother is as blind as a bat. He wouldn't have seen what Giuseppe's sharp eyes saw. If the constable hadn't been sweet on the cook at number 48, he wouldn't have been late on his beat. He nodded his head gently. All converging towards a given spot. And then, when the time comes, over the top, zero hour. Yes, all of them converging towards zero. He repeated, towards zero. Then he gave a quick little shudder. You're cold, sir. Come nearer the fire. No, no, said Mr. Treves. Just... Someone walking over my grave, as they say. Well, well, I must be making my way homewards. He gave an affable little nod and went slowly and precisely out of the room. There was a moment of dubious silence, and then Rufus Lord Casey remarked that poor old Treves was getting on. Sir William Cleaver said, An acute brain, a very acute brain, but Anno Domini tells in the end. Got a groggy heart, too, said Lord. May drop down any minute, I believe. Oh, he takes pretty good care of himself, said young Lewis. At that moment, Mr. Treves was carefully stepping into his smooth-running Daimler. It deposited him at a house in a quiet square. A solicitous butler valet helped him off with his coat. Mr. Treves walked into his library, where a coal fire was burning. His bedroom lay beyond— for out of consideration for his heart, he never went upstairs. He sat down in front of the fire and drew his letters towards him. His mind was still dwelling on the fancy he had outlined at the club.
Even now, thought Mr. Treves to himself, some drama, some murder-to-be, is in course of preparation. If I were writing one of these amusing stories of blood and crime, I should begin now, with an elderly gentleman sitting in front of the fire, opening his letters, going, unbeknownst to himself, towards zero. He slit open an envelope and gazed down absently at the sheet he had abstracted from it. Suddenly, his expression changed. He came back from romance to reality. Dear me, said Mr. Treves, how extremely annoying. Really, how very vexing. After all these years, this will alter all my plans.